0: This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content.
1: We have... ...enemies within our country. I think it's a
2: combination of demonology and psyop.
1: The citizens are going to rise up and become deputized.
0: I have always heard President Trump. I, I like the way he talked. He reminded me of most men. Joe Biden last
2: night in the debate, he's, it's like he's not even a
1: human being. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represented extremism. Can you imagine repatriating all the black Americans that Pat just spoke about to Africa? Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins, faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, or even out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane, defined God. And look. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'll be your host, Daniel White Hodge. Hey, hey folks. Hey, 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 hey. How we doing? How we doing out there? Podcast Land It Is. Oh my goodness. Well, uh, here we are black history month, 2024. Uh, hopefully you are learning about, uh, black inventors and black heroes, uh, in your, in your own space and time and educational pursuits. Um, yeah, it's hard to believe sometimes, uh, you know, black history month kind of sneaks up on me. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was interesting just to, um, you know, take it in this year. I've been trying to, you know, post a few things. One of the things that I think is is uh, really been on my mind over the last few years is just how much black folks have invented in this country uh, that has been stolen uh, or that we don't get, you know, the credit for uh, in doing. And oftentimes, you know, science books, math books, the history books are 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 told in such a way that, you know, white, particularly white males, you know, rule. And they are the smartest, they're the best uh even in some of the you know the like ancient discoveries or you know, where they say you know uh, i've talked about this before but you know where they say you know like egypt you know there had to be aliens who did that you know but then you go to like greece and uh france and you see some of those ancient ruins and people are like oh no that's that's just ingenuity that's just you know people that uh you know that they just knew what they were doing um it's only been recently too that you know some of that narrative has started to change and you know, in some of those uh, UFOlogy circles that I find myself in um where there aren't a lot of people of color, by the way. um but yeah, so it 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 is uh it, it's a good time to just kind of learn a little bit more about you know the impact that black people have had and just the struggle that black people have had uh, in the United States, especially as it pertains to building wealth. Um, and building um, just infrastructure. Uh, so yeah, take this time to do that. Um, at this week, I'm excited to have I got a, a guest on, and uh, you know, I, one of the things I wanted to do here on the show was to just be able to provide different perspectives and different perspectives that aren't always gloom and doom. I realize my mo can be very pessimistic, very. Um, yeah, Eeyore, if you will, uh, and yeah, I just don't want it to remain that way. I don't want to. I don't want to end up always having, to, you know. Uh, I read an article this week in the Atlantic uh, by David Brooks, who's an interesting writer in and of himself. Uh, he tends to lean more center right um, and whatnot, but that's beside the point. But he was talking about just how sometimes on the left it can be the sign, the badge of of of, uh, of an insider, right? If you're you know really cynical, and I think there's a lot to be cynical about. Don't get me wrong, I I'm not out here trying to tell you that um, you know there's good things to be looking forward to because <laughs> quite frankly, there's just not. We're in an interesting time, and you know time will tell. You know what happens this year. Um, In the election Uh, But nevertheless I wanted to bring some different voices on And just kind of look at things from a different perspective And this brother here Has been doing some stuff within the church And looking at Just how things Come together Uh, Brother Trey Ferguson who I'm about to introduce here um, And I wanted to start off Black History Month with (laughs) somebody black Um, He's put a new book out uh, Called Theologizing Bigger um, homilies on living free, freely and li, uh, loving wholly. Um, and I think, you know, that's so, there's something about love. There's something about uh, the idea of being in community with people. Um, while I'm not a fan of organized religion and particularly evangelical church settings, um, I do think there's an importance to coming together. I think there's an importance about, you know, what does it mean to, to have a theology, a sense of faith around a particular subject? Um, and I think that's what, um, I think that's what Brother Ferguson is trying to do here and trying to really um, break down. Uh, and so I had a chance through uh, a friend of mine who's also a um, an editor, Brother David. Oh man, what is uh, Brother David Morris? Uh, he actually worked on Scott uh, Akimoto's book as well. Um And uh, it's actually the guy, if I'm ever going to do a memoir, uh, which I've been thinking a lot about, uh, it would probably be through him. And um, yeah, he reached out and was like, bro, you got to have this guy on. And I was like, let's do it. Um. So, yeah, I wanted to kick it off. And there's going to be a couple other more podcasts, you know, kind of dealing with. I don't want to say the lighter side of things. And I don't want to say, oh, it's just it's a different perspective. It's, it's a different way of looking at how the world around us is being engaged. Um, and particularly with those who still have the capacity and bandwidth to be, <laughs> to want to be involved uh, with organized religion and particularly in denominational settings. That's always, um, that's always a trip to me because I'm just like, oh, oh, get out of here with that. but people are doing it and that's what brother trey is doing man so let me go ahead and introduce this brother we're gonna get right to the point uh, because we had a great conversation uh trey likes playing with words so that's what he does whether it be with tweets videos essays sermonic presentations bible studies podcasts or speaking engagements of other sorts he's always trying to figure out how to provoke an image in a seeker with some combination of words um, uh, He he is a pastor, he's a thinker, he's a writer, speaker, teacher, creator. Um, he, uh, after graduating from the University of Miami, the Bachelor of Science, okay, in, in Electronic Media and Theater Arts, Trey also earned his Master of Divinity from the Samuel DeWitt Proctor School of Theology at Virginia Union University. He lives a uh, homestead in Homestead, Florida, in Florida in the heat of it. Right. And not just the weather. I'm talking about the politics uh, where he serves as the executive pastor uh, at the Refuge Church, but is available to travel for speaking engagements throughout the U.S. and abroad. Um, I enjoyed my time talking with him and particularly about his book and uh, how he's engaging life. So I wanted to pass that on here. So happy Black History Month. Uh, enjoy this conversation, fam. Well, Brother Trey, welcome to the podcast, man. It's great to, great to have you on. Yeah, it's great to
2: be here, man. I appreciate you.
1: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, well, let's start off. It's a question I ask everybody. Uh, what, what's, what's gotten you into to your line of work, man? What has been happening from birth to now?
2: I kind of stumbled into it, in all honesty,
0: I just, just okay. wanted
2: and no, okay. that's, that's dope because I feel like when you stumble into something, that's, that's when you end up walking on purpose. Yeah. You know, yeah. Somebody's going to disagree with that, but I don't care. Uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, <laughs> uh, I, I joked at one point, not, not joke. This is a true to life story that when I was little, I said I wanted to be a preacher and then, uh, my pastor at the time told me like, Hey, okay, first step, read the Bible. And I was like, "No, nah, I'm, I'm gonna just be a fireman. Um, you know, And <laughs> right. I did the whole, the whole church thing. Cause this is where my mom took me. And in the moment it became a question about whether or not I was going to church. Um, I stopped going to church. I was class clown and all sorts of stuff working through whatever issues. Cause my father died when I was pretty young. I was a freshman okay. in high school, you know, okay. um, acting out nothing too, too crazy. Like yeah. I stayed out of jail, um, but yeah. just, just getting into things. But there was always this undercurrent of the fact that when I talked, people listened and, um, At a certain juncture after going to college meeting a a girl there who eventually became my wife and unlike me she didn't grow up in church but she did um have curiosity about religion and she asked me to go to church so i was in this place this situation um where i was attending the church pretty regularly i like to go to bible study because the pastor would allow us to ask questions afterwards and stuff right and the guy who was there um, in charge of the youth He had moved away. And I was like, oh, somebody needs to hang out with these teenagers or whatever. Somebody needs to do that stuff. And um, so I kind of stepped into serving the youth ministry. And the more time I spent around the Bible and and feeding curiosities I had, the more interested I became. Mm -hmm. And that eventually turned to me leading Bible studies in front of adults sometimes and then me preaching. And and before you know it, man, I was like, yo, I I feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, man. That's what's up, man. That's what's up. Um, and so when you, I mean, when you start thinking about just church and where we're at right now, I ask this from from a lot of people, man. Where, where do you? I'm I'm gonna assume you are in a black environment, in black church type style, or multi ethnic, or where, what's 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 like the context you in right now?
2: We're black and multicultural. Okay, um, multicultural, not meaning like. Like, it's not like the Joel Osteen Church where you got, like, all the white people and then the black people got a section. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, we're not one of all. When yeah. I say multicultural, <laughs> I mean that, like, we're not all black Americans. So um, yeah. because I'm located in Miami, there are Haitian Americans, okay. people Bahamian Americans, but uh, mostly black. There, there's uh, a couple of, like, my wife is biracial and her mother actually comes to church with us and everything. So that's a that's token white lady. It's my mother-in-law. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but other than yeah. that, yeah. I'm, I'm. I'm. I stay in black people business.
1: Yeah. No. No. No, man. That's. 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 That's what's up, man. And I mean. And so how, in Miami, I. I didn't put all that together, man. Like how is it, especially being in a state like Florida, uh, being black, trying to assert some sense of just your own identity, man, in a place like Florida. Um yeah. uh, And I mean, what's. What's that like? And then how does that, you know, still continue on? I mean, I guess what I'm really asking is, how do you continue to develop? church growth, church, whatever, however you want to do it, leadership, discipleship um, in an era where people are like, man, I don't, I don't know about church, man. I don't, mm, mm. you know what I'm saying?
2: That's a great question. And I think for me, like I'm in this awkward position where I work in the church, right? Like what most people recognize as institutional church at the same time when I, um, I want the church to be accountable for a whole lot of things, not just like in, of course, like we need to be more accountable for sexual abuse scandals and things of that nature, yeah, yeah, but yeah. also the role that the church at large has played in shaping the society that we now recognize, including the parts of society that, that stink, truth be told, you know? Yeah. And so like when people are like, oh, the church needs to do, we need to get rid of the church. i will be like, yeah, I, I hear you. I really do. Um, And so a large part of that, when you talk about church growth and everything, is wrestling with and consistently re-examining what the church ought to be, as opposed to what it has been. We talk about decline in church numbers and everything, but when we look at the heyday, the peak of church attendance, right, when you're talking about the early to mid 20th century, like after a few great awakenings and everybody's identifying and everything like that, these are the institutions that shape the country that we have today. Mm-hmm. That's the institution that is primarily responsible for the decline in numbers because there was a failure in discipleship somewhere. You understand? And so for me, when we talk about church growth, I don't view numeric growth as an automatic bonus because the question becomes, what are we discipling people into? What are we converting people into? And is that worth celebrating? And so for me, it has to be missional growth. Are are we helping people to look more like Jesus? Are we helping people to embody the love of God? And that's harder to quantify. Mm-hmm. You know, if I, yeah. if I talk about church growth in that way, it's like, well, how do you measure that? The answer is like, you really don't. You got to look at fruit after after a little bit. Like, are, are we as a people and as a society trending in the right direction? Am I making sense? I yeah, that?
1: yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I'm, I'm following you. I'm following you. Yeah, no. It's, I mean, it's a question I ask, particularly of folks who are, excuse me, who are in direct Um, you know, line of work, you know, their work and profession is faith. I mean, you know, you a pastor, reverend, uh, you know, the clergy and, uh, I, it's it's the curiosity always just gets me. And you're right. I mean, I don't think quantifiable growth. I mean, I, I, you know, that whole system and, and, and model, right. You know, looked at after, um, you know, the growth of CEO and Fortune 500 companies and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but let me ask you this, man. And, you know, in your own sense, man, how do you walk the line? Um, and I definitely, you know, like I said, we're going to get into the book here. But I, I um, but how do you walk the line being black, a Christian, especially when you have brothers and, and, and cats? I mean, I, I, I'm sure you've had these conversations with just, you know, folks from, from around like, man, you know, Christianity is the white man's religion, man. Like how, how yeah. do you how are you, you know, and I like asking this particularly of black pastors and stuff. So I feel like yeah. I can ask you this. It's like, how do you deal with that environment? Cause I mean, that's something I've heard for easily the last 40 years of my life, right? It's like, you know, you're yeah. growing up, you know, it's like, oh man, you know, religion is this, Christianity is, is you know, is not, was it wasn't designed and meant for, uh, for black people. There's an account that I follow on Instagram the name is Elijah Farrakhan, but I don't, I don't think it's him. I think they put a whole bunch of videos together. I actually think it's probably somebody from Fox News who actually uh, put the whole town <laughs> together. But um, they put together some sermons from uh, um, from a, what's a brother man, a Louis Farrakhan. And so, um, yeah, I'd be curious just, you know, on, on that note and, and whatnot and what, what you've encountered. Maybe you haven't. I don't know if that makes sense. That Good. was a long winded question.
2: No, it's, it's cool. The the second section of my book, right? Like it's broken down into four parts. The mm-hmm. second part of the book is actually called the White Man's Religion.
1: Right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right, and that's why I was like, yeah. okay, well, let me yeah. ask this brother.
2: Yeah, because at the end of the day, when people say Christianity is the white man, the White Man's Religion, yes and and no, because. I maintain that there is no Christianity. There are Christianities, right? Like at no point in the history of of the whole wide world of Christianity has there been unanimous uniformity in this thing. Like literally we start seeing things break apart even within the New Testament, right? Like there's a Paul faction and Paul talks about, oh, y'all say I follow Apollos, I follow. There's never been uniformity here. And so people have different opinions about how this story of Jesus ought to guide our communities, mm-hmm. right? And a large part of what we recognize or think of or imagine when we hear the word Christian, particularly here in the West, in the United States, is, is white people stuff, right? Yeah, Because <laughs> like, yeah. we got to understand that when we talk about religion, we're not always talking about creeds or belief. Like from a sociological standpoint, what you believe is almost entirely irrelevant to religion. Like The beliefs are secondary to what religion is. Religion is about how a society orients itself, what stories and signs and symbols it ascribes importance to. And so Christianity, as much as we want to believe, is just about creeds and belief and faith. It's also about cultural orientations. And a large part of that in our particular context is centered around what white people have told us about the story of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The story of Jesus almost becomes secondary, yeah. right? To the point where a lot of times in colonial law, Christian is used as a synonym for white. And so when people say Christianity is the white man's religion, they're not just making it up. They're not just being haters. They're ta- They're describing a reality that they've noticed. Now, the question is, does Christianity have to be a white man's religion? No. But is a large part of what we've been exposed to white man religion? Yeah, absolutely. And that's we got to be honest about the fact that there are churches pastored by black people with majority or entirely black congregations mm-hmm. that are practicing a faith that is entirely indistinguishable from that white man's religion and all of its offsets, whether that be mainline Protestant, whether that be conservative evangelical, or what have you. Sometimes the theology is indistinguishable. Mm-hmm. But then you have somebody like Howard Thurman or Bishop yeah. Daniel Turner yeah. or Martin Luther King, and that is not white man's religion. Like it's they're using the same stories and they're they're casting a completely different vision and we got to, we have to deal with the fact that all Christians ain't talking about the same thing. We're, we're not all serving the same God. We're not all practicing the same religion
1: Yeah,
2: and it's okay to name that like, yo, no, some of this stuff is, is, is white man's religion. And it
1: doesn't have to be right. Right, 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 No, that's a good, that's a good response. I, I, I appreciate that, man. I think, um, you know, the complexity of the era that we're in, right, puts us in, you know, the information age where it's like everybody yep. has access to everything, right? Yeah. Um, and, if, you know, of course, a lot of that is not necessarily fact-based or truth-based. It's just somebody who might have made it up in the corner of somebody's basement. Um. Yeah. So, yeah, so given that, man, and, you know, we're heading into a contentious uh, 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 election year, man, how do y'all navigate some of those issues p- where albeit political, but it be the police killed another black person i mean right it's like i see that something there's always something on my timeline um about a black person either get beat shot uh something by the police and that's you know that's kind of been an ongoing theme but i'd be curious how y'all in in your church engage with that and and in particular you know right now the big you know big talk is everybody's talking about you know gaza and israel and palestinians and and whatnot man how do you how do y'all navigate some of those conversations again i'm not looking for right or wrong just again how y'all navigate that as a congregation, as a church, as as a people?
2: Yeah, through it all, we try to take the stories of Jesus seriously and see how the stories of Jesus um, and, and the gospel of Jesus inform a lot of these situations. So when you talk about things like police brutality, we have to, like, if you look at the reality of crucifixion, there's a very strong parallel there, right? So Dr. James Cone puts a very clearly and draws a very clear parallel when he talks, uh, in his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, by very nature of the incarnation, Jesus was incarnated into an underclass, into an oppressed people group, somebody who was under the threat uh, or under the reality, not just the threat, the reality of colonization and of brutalization and died the most brutal death imaginable for the time, reserved for insurrectionists. And it happened in public along a, a busy streetway right? um, so that it would be an example to other people. That sounds sort of like, <laughs> like you know, it's not a, a one-to-one analog, uh, but the Roman soldiers were, in effect, a police force of sorts uh, who were used by the power of the state to keep people in line. And we see that happen with Jesus. So I think it says something about the love of God that when we think about incarnation, God deliberately chooses to show up as somebody on the underclass of Empire Mm -hmm. on, on, on the underside of that and experiencing the full brunt of that, because it's there where we understand the full depravity of what we have become as a people. And that is made manifest and plain in the crucifixion. But the good news, like the gospel, is that all things are made new in the resurrection, that the love of God cannot be killed. You could try to kill God, it won't work, right? So when you start talking about things like police brutality, we start talking about like elections and and politics. What does the story of God we have communicate to us about the realities that we've inherited and do they have to be that way? Hmm. Like, My faith makes room for the fact that there is a lot of injustice, that there is a lot of sin in this world around us, even as it says that in God, all things are made new. And so for a lot of times, it's looking at the reality that we have and then through the power of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, reimagining what things can look like and striving toward that goal.
1: Gotcha. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. Absolutely. I think I think faith obviously still plays a role in and uh in where we find ourselves i think uh you know there's there's a big part of it i mean in terms of how we do it like you said i think there's a lot of different approaches to it and a lot of different opinions uh, on that um well let's uh let me ask you this man on your website you, you say you're a theologizer and i know that's you know a part of the uh the book is the uh, book title as well what does that mean man theologizing theologizer how do you break that down uh for yourself so- and all that
2: Theologizing is thinking thoughts about God, man. That's just, that's what it is for me. It's it's really wrestling with the the assumptions that we have about the supernatural, the divine, and everything, and then charting the course for what that looks like. Because at the end of the day, what we have to wrestle with is the fact that what we think and believe about God is largely constrained by our imagination, right? Like we can't see God physically, we can't find tangible hardcore evidence of God. And so the things that we believe about God mostly happen in our heads and and in sharing those thoughts within community. And I call that process of of constructing this, this idea of God, taking these, these inputs, whether that be theology, tradition, experience, whatever, um, taking all those inputs and what God looks like in your head. I call that process theologizing. Mm. Um, (laughs) Right. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm a theologizer. I, I, I literally, I'm, Fortunate enough that I just get to do that. I get to think thoughts about God and crystallize them and wrestle with Scripture and tradition, doctrine, all of these things, and and communicate that to people vocationally. That's my job. But I think that everybody does a bit of theologizing.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and you talk about that. I think here in the introduction of your book, he says this book is about a third option. You don't have to ignore your nagging doubts and honest questions. You don't have to check any part of yourself at the door. You don't have to stop theorizing or theologizing. You can theologize bigger. What are some of those nagging uh, doubts and and honest questions, man? I know we were talking before the show. You were saying you know there were some things the way you say it. You know what I'm saying? Can some people may not you know may not necessarily be on board with it? You know, but but I'd be curious. Like, what are some of the things, man, that you know that keep you keep you driven?
2: So one of the things about me, I I love the Bible, Mm -hmm. and I hear that, and lots of people think and feel different things when they hear me say that sentence. People think that, that means that I view the Bible as this textbook that is completely accurate historically and scientifically and all of these things, and I, I don't believe that to be the case, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Man, I don't think there's any reason to 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 view that other than the fact that at some point in history somebody decided that that was going to be the case, and that becomes doctrine and orthodoxy for some people. Yeah, and there are all these people who are like, no, it doesn't really make a ton of sense. So I'm not saying that there's no truth in the Bible, or that even there's no such thing as historical like fact to be found in the Bible. What I'm saying is that's not how this thing is designed to work. And so when it comes to like, we can theologize bigger, we can acknowledge that Bible itself means book. It's talking about a library. It's a collection of different things. There are different theological claims being made in the Bible. There's different theological agendas going on in the Bible. And to take a a verse from a letter that is in the Bible that says that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for training and righteousness and everything, and act as though that that is referring to this entire Canyon when that's not even how this thing is composed and everything. I think that's kind of irresponsible. Um, I think it's constrained the way that we view a lot of these things. And so even then, if we view the Bible as the foundation for our faith, what we believe about the Bible, uh, will determine how we engage that faith a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that we are setting people up to think about this seriously, uh, when we force this collection of text to perform things that it is not supposed to perform for us. Right. And so, Acknowledging what things are, I believe, is key and central to helping us build beautiful things on the truths that we get from them. Yeah yeah, so that's just like one example in, in the book and in, 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 in like just in general, how I think about things. Telling the truth about what things are will help us to build on those truths. and sometimes the stories that we spend about certain things and, and the facts that we accept. <laughs> the facts that we create and then accept about them are um, are limiting.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I like what you said here. I think it's uh, even in, at the beginning of the, of the book, it says, I did not feel... Welcome where I could not bring my questions. My questions are a part of me. I think I got it from my father who never met a convention or expectation he wasn't willing to question. Uh, he was known for carrying a notebook full of graphing paper around where he tried to figure out some things uh, or he, where he tried to try to figure some things out and architect new things where the current things didn't make sense to him. Um, how important are questions? And, and with that, what are the challenging things? that people shy away from when it comes to questions, especially the difficult ones?
2: Yeah, questions are very important because questions are one of, if not the main tool in accountability, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And accountability is what holds communities together, even when you are in community with God. Like there's this idea that we can't question God and I don't know exactly where that comes from. Some people point to Job and everything. I'm like, well, even though Job, Question God, God doesn't curse him for that. He explains to Job, yo, some of the stuff you're not going to get because you don't see things the way I do. But then Job gets blessed for that, right? And wrestling with God, Jacob gets a new name, he's Israel. And so when we sit there and act like questions are indicative of a lack of faith, or that questions are something that take us apart from, from being strong in God then what we're doing is demanding that people cut off a part of themselves mm. that God put there, right? <laughs> like they're, they're denying themselves in a way that is not biblical, right? People point to the, to the fact that, oh, we have to deny ourselves daily. We're talking about fleshly desires. We're talking about the things that we've been trained by the world, like greed and stuff, we deny that. The questions, that those are God-given. There's, not, there's nothing wrong about that, right? And so when, We have cultures that do not celebrate the questioners among us. What we are creating is drones. We are dehumanizing people in a way in in making them bifurcate themselves and so for me a lot of times re-engaging that self the, the curiosity that we've been given right yeah so when jesus says that the kingdom belongs to such as these and talking about children when jesus says you must be born born again the thing that children have in common is that they'll ask questions all day why why <laughs> why Why? Yeah. like my, yeah. my son went through the why phase at four years old and i it was very very annoying and at some point, like we try to shame kids out of that, like, oh, stop, just do it. But no, that, that that's a good thing. Yeah. It's in those questions that we not only um, hold people accountable and learn more about them, but we ask people questions when we want to learn more about them. We ask people questions when, when you begin dating somebody or a love interest. You ask questions to find out who you're dealing with. Yeah. So every time we try to divorce like the questions, you got that. What are we doing to community when that happens? And Is this actually good?
1: Yeah, no, I oh I love it. I mean, I I you know, I've built most of my career around questions and doubt and and you know, and you know interrogation. I mean, as a researcher, right? It's like I think we yeah. have to interrogate certain things. Um, in chapter four of your book, man, you talk about there's an arc in Kentucky, and I, I like the, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Uh, yeah. Talk a little bit about that, man. Like, what was you know? You start off with wait for the facts in quotations, man. What was what was going on for you for this chapter, man?
2: <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, I just, I just thought it was funny. Nah, yeah, no, it is. Okay. Just, yeah. yeah, yeah. So. When we talk about waiting for the facts, I, I had to chuckle about the fact that anytime you mentioned earlier about police brutality, and, and we we see somebody getting shot up by the police or something, and there's there's a chorus of people um, online who be like, "We need to wait for the facts before we react." I'm like, okay, I'm like yeah, and the courts, yeah, but we we can warn this now. We can be we can be upset about this now, like it's the, even even if the absolute worst thing happened and and whatever, no, we can be upset about the fact that. That force um was 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 used, even if you didn't it was necessary, like that's still lamentable like we we can we can mourn people dying we we can do that, right, right? Yeah. um but uh, the idea that everybody's oh wait for the facts, wait for the facts what do you mean by that right? <laughs> and then I had to chuckle about the fact that many of these same people are really really into the most literal interpretations. Of the Bible, I'm like, okay, yeah. so right away, your idea of, of a fact and what it is capable of, um, and then the importance of certain facts is, is, is then called into question for for the simple fact. And again, I got to be careful when I'm saying this, um, because everything in the Bible cannot possibly be factual at the same time for the simple for some of those facts stand in conflict with each other, yeah, yeah, I'm not, yeah. there's nothing controversial about this. Some some people have done a lot of work to try to reconcile them, but it's, it's not really that compelling. But I say all <laughs> <Right. of> that, <laughs> yeah, right. it, it, yeah. it doesn't make the most sense. So somebody's going to hear that and they're going to disagree, that's fine. You're allowed to disagree with me. It, it, it's cool. Um, but when I talk about the ARC in Kentucky, I'm captivated by the fact not only that this ARC exists, but that if you go to the website of, of Answers in Genesis, which is the, the company behind this ARC, that they say that they are an apologetics organization um, to help people defend the Christian faith.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Like that arc there is to help people defend the Christian faith. And what I find so fascinating is that the Christian faith is told in the person and story of Jesus who does not have a lot to say about the ark. That is a part of the, the the story of the people of Israel. And yeah. we get to read those and everything. But my faith is not in the ark. My faith is in the finished work of a man who loved the world enough to fight to the point where he was killed by the police, right? Like yeah. that, that's where my faith exists. And so the idea that me going to a replica of the ark in the middle of Kentucky or it's not the middle, it's the edge of Kentucky. It's, it's close to like Ohio or something, I think. But um, yeah. the idea that that is going to strengthen my faith based on the facts that we discover there, like it's interesting to me that sometimes we are swayed by what a fact is and at other times, no, we need to wait for more of those, right? Um, I, I found that an interesting juxtaposition, and, and that's how that chapter came
1: out. No, I like that. No, that, that's that's what's up, man. I mean, I think... I mean, I always encourage people like, you know, whether you agree or disagree, man, you got to go down and, and take a look at just the the monstrosity of, of that whole area down there, man. I mean, the Jesus camps, the the lions, the the ark. I mean, I think there's something to be said. I mean, just kind of this interesting mixture of capitalism, religion and piety. Um, well, let me ask this, man, because I think I think you're on to something. I mean, and as you get into the book. Uh, some of the questions that David and I'd be curious to know how you uh, you got in contact with Brother David. David Morris uh, is a mutual friend. He's a, the editor, right, of your book?
2: The the publisher. He's, he's a, the publisher.
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah 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 yeah. Um, he also
2: did some of the editing for it, but yeah, he's the, he's the publisher over at Lake Drive Books. Yes sir.
1: Yes 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 yes. Um, so you know some of the questions he brought up, I thought were were really interesting, and I'd be be curious to get your take. The first one was like why. Or how can we unlearn the ways that race has shaped our faith? I'd be curious how that one um, plays out for you there.
2: Yeah, for me, a lot of times it comes to, again, wrestling with what the Bible is. I had um, a professor in seminary who once described the Bible as an account of losers.
1: Okay, Okay. (laughs) yeah,
2: yeah. when we wrestle with the fact that every single book was compiled or composed by somebody who was either under the direct threat of exile under the reality of exile or experiencing colonization in the moment every single book like the books of moses were compiled by people dealing with or heading into or out of the babylonian exile right like that is the context behind the compilation of this book the right to self-definition <laughs> under the the power of empire whether that empire, be the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Persians or the Medes or the Greeks or the Romans. like That is what is coloring the compilation of these books that we recognize as the Bible. People are wrestling with how is God going to show up in our situation? And do we have the right to worship God as we see fit? Do we have the right to define ourselves as a people? Right At some point in time, I can point to the point, like, I'm, I'm going to say it was the Constantinian shift or whatever, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? A of yeah. the time it, it becomes a state religion or Rome, mm-hmm. it turns into something different, where now it is the expression, the cultural expression of the people in charge. It is the cultural expression of empire. And when we wrestle with the fact that everybody, including all of the, the first believers that we're looking at in the New Testament, were experiencing colonization from the underside, uh, mm-hmm. and somehow that gets flipped as it gets adopted in, in a religion a new religion that's almost foreign to the ones within the pages of that book, um, the social location of how we're interpreting and applying these stories changes. And so the question that we have to consistently ask ourselves is what have we lost in institutionalizing Christianity, the way that we have, like what interpretive lenses have we lost? And the more we are able to wrestle with that question, I think the more we can realize the, The the way that things like race have shaped our understanding of these stories, because when the interpretation that has been handed down to us from people who have never known what exile or empire or colonization was like the underside of that, when their interpretations become the dominant ones, we have to recognize there are some things that we just won't see. Right. Like mm-hmm. if I were to take you down the road of liberation theology and, and and tell you how this strikes me as a black person reading all of this stuff and you've never experienced life as a black person, a lot of that stuff is going to sound new to you. Right. So the inverse has to be true. That if you have never experienced like the the, the, the underside or there there are certain things about our interpretations we're just going to miss. And when we become aware of that fact. Um, I think we could do a lot towards what they, a lot of times they call a decolonizing the, the yeah. mind or decolonizing theology. We undergo that process when we become aware of of the shift that no these stories belong to a people who operated or I'm sorry who existed in a very different social location than we do.
1: I like that, man. I like that. And so, how? Okay, so let me ask this question. This just kind of came up as you were as you were responding that. Um, so how do you deal with the folks who say, including some black folks who say, you know, oh, you just too woke. You know, it's wokeism, man. We just pushing back yeah. against all this wokeness, you know, which yeah. is, a, you know, it's a complete misuse of the terminology and the context. But I'd be curious, like, you know, again, engagement, uh, cause I'm sure you got to come across in some, in some circles, you know, people <laughs> be like, man, you just, oh, that's that woke stuff again, man. All those liberals, <laughs> you yeah.
2: know what I'm saying? Oh, um, you said, how do I respond to them? That's the question.
1: How do you respond yeah. how do you and again just the same question that I was asking okay. before like how do you navigate you know some of those spaces when somebody is is you know when it comes out that way whether it be in person yeah. or online you know what I'm saying I know online can get real contentious real quick
2: Yeah I don't I don't respond that's 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 the answer to the question <laughs> I don't um and and, and I, I like sometimes I'll ignore it there's times where I'll, I'll laugh like literally I'll see a comment like that and I just simply reply lol and hit send um because the, the one of the yeah. things I believe And what would Jesus do? There are times when Jesus receives accusations or insults and will not respond, he won't address them. And a couple of things happens when, when I do that, right? A couple of things happen. Uh, there are people who are frustrated. Like, oh, so you're not going to engage the content of my argument? No. Why would I do that? I don't view it as as a valid enough point. Like, you think what you think, and I, and and I think differently. We disagree here. We can agree to do that. There's no. Uh, what is the purpose of us having the same arguments that everybody's already hearing all the time? Yeah. Right. Um. And at the end of the day, what we're gonna have to find out is whose witness is more compelling here. I happen to believe that a lot of times I'm better at explaining these things than people who are, like, oh, just woke. I'm like, okay. Interestingly enough, you want me to engage with your but you haven't actually engaged with anything I've said when you just dismiss it as well. And if you dismiss me as well, I don't have any problem dismissing that critique, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't feel as though that actually says anything about me. When people say that, cool, you get to feel how you want. Uh, but at the end of the day, my job is not to convince everybody in the world to believe the same things that I do. My job is to help give curious people. Um, tools and entry to to grow. A little bit closer to wholeness and freedom and wisdom, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, most of the time when people come to me like that, uh, I laugh. sometimes I crack jokes, because you know I ain't been a pastor my whole life, so uh, I, I grew up around the cafeteria tables. If you can't if you can't play the dozens, you might want to leave me alone, you know. um And that's how that one goes. Because at the end of the day, that even the word book like you said, that's not what the term originally meant. And there have been people who have openly said, like, this is our goal to just label all of this stuff as woke mm-hmm. or as critical race theory or, or whatever. Right. right. Like, you've already showed me your hand. Like, your your goal here is to never hear anything I'm saying, to never give an actual legitimate audience or, or hearing to that. And I'm not going to beg you to do that. I'm not going to beg you to hear me, especially, especially, especially if you don't have the power to do nothing about it. Right. Like, right. who are you? Why do I care about convincing you? And when it comes to things of, of race in, in particular, I tell people all the time, I'm like, oh, how, how white people feel about me ain't none of my business. When it becomes my business is when you have the power to do something about it. If if all you're going to do is hop in comment sections and rah, 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 cool, you can do that. I, I don't care. I'm, I'm I'm over here living a life, you know? So how do I respond? I, I, I don't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like that. I like that as well, man. I've, I've pulled back from most of my social media stuff, but... In every now and then, when there is a, a crazy enough comment, like you said, I just, you know, I, I, I almost do the exact same thing. Put an LOL, <laughs> put some like crazy gif on there. Yeah. Um, that I'm like, yeah, nah, man. Um, all right. Well, hopping more into this book, man. I appreciate chapter seven, man. We got to have a talk about deconstruction. And, the, you know, you open yeah. it up with, right, we got to have a talk about deconstruction. A lot of y'all think you've left toxic Christianity behind, but you haven't. You may have left the creeds behind but this harmful way of being in which you assume to have the world figure out, you took that with you. So break break this down a little bit, man, because we hear a lot about deconstruction, especially in like the white progressive spaces, right? It's yeah. like, oh, you got to deconstruct, you got to deconstruct. Walk us through some of that stuff, man.
2: Right. Um, what we have to recognize is that In deconstruction, there are times when people are moved to reevaluate their faith because of the things they are being taught to believe. Yeah. But there are also times when people are taught to reevaluate their faith because of the behavior of people who taught them to believe these things, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like, whoa, that doesn't seem good. If that's not good, then what about these teachings, right? And it's primarily that second group of people who, like— are just now waking up to the racism in their traditions or just mm-hmm. now waking up to the homophobia or the repression or whatever spiritual bondage that, that comes, like they're just now waking up to that and then reevaluating things. Um, there is a degree to which they, they're hesitant or they struggle to navigate this world without the need for certainty on things, right? Becoming less certain about things that were once sold as certain is discombobulating. Mm-hmm. So they leave faith behind. And then a lot of times what ends up happening is they'll take that same need or requirement for certainty into the new spaces they occupy. So people who are most involved in campus ministry and, and most involved in the witnessing of people will then go after their deconstruction journey, if they deconvert or whatever, and start a podcast because they still have to be converted people all the time, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, so let me ask you a question. What have we really changed about ourselves? Like, yeah, yeah. And 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 again, that's not to say that, oh, you need to completely reinvent yourself. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that it's fair to to ask ourselves, okay, our beliefs have changed, but has our behavior, has our ethic changed? Mm. Has has that and so for me, the way this manifests itself, like the the most hilariously to me, is people who then become vocal anti-theists not just agnostic not just atheist but no all religion is bad and anybody who believes a religion is stupid and my job is to convince every person who believes in anything to stop believing in that That's an extreme case right but i'm like you actually took all of that with you out of the church because yeah. you spent you you were spent your whole life being groomed to believe that your job is to convert everybody to this way of thinking and now that you're out you want to do the same thing in the other direction and what we have to reckon with there is that it's not enough to deconstruct the beliefs. We have to deconstruct the ethics that those beliefs have engendered inside of us, Ooh. the ways that we relate mm. to the people around us like mm. that. That's just as important as the mm. creed. Because at the end of the day, like even James says it in the Bible, right? Like faith without works and dead. What you believe ain't really much of nobody else's business. What people are really going to learn about you mm. is how you behave. Your beliefs have changed. Your behavior hasn't. You're still the same person. You just adopted different creeds. Right. And so um, I say that not as an attack, but as an invitation to growth and freedom and wholeness, because I want you free from that. (laughs) it doesn't have to be that way. Right.
1: I love that, man, I, and I specifically like this particular chapter because I, I say it uh, much less eloquently than what you're saying here, but I say, look, look, I don't want to be a fundamentalist on either side. I don't want to be a conservative fundamentalist, Bible thumping, but I also don't want to be a woke uh, a fundamentalist, you know, on the other side trying to get, yeah, like you said, you know, bring bring people to over to my side or, oh, you didn't say this the right way. Um, on page 75, you have a quote. that says, I don't hate higher education. I hate young people being exploited to sustain a complex that has not kept pace with the society it purports to prepare them for. I'm frustrated that in a land where you cannot buy a drink or smoke a cigarette until you are 21 years of age, you can enlist in the armed forces at 18 and sign a master promissory note for five-figure student loans at 17. I do not like that promise is dangled with a price tag far too high for the adolescent brains to comprehend. Um, talk a little bit about that. Cause that, I mean, that's a, that's a big thing. In fact, as we, as you and I speak, I am uh, having many frustrated conversations with uh higher or my, my student loans that I'm still been paying on. And one, one is telling me in terms of, you know, public loan forgiveness is telling me, Oh, you got to go to the federal branch. You call them up. Oh, you got to go to Mojila and talk with them. And they're both, mm-hmm. you know, sending me back. I mean, the frustration, Mm-hmm. I'm like, look, I've done what you've told me to do. Like, I've paid. I've been at this place for over 10 years. So that in and of itself, right, just the, the amount of debt that people walk yeah. away with, uh, not to mention, you know, some of the ideologies. Break break that down a little bit more, man, because I think... There's there's a lot in this man. If that makes sense to where I'm, what I'm trying to ask, does that make sense?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. First and foremost, I need you to do one thing. When, yeah. when we hop off this call, you call Mohila back up. All the people, and you tell them that Jesus paid it off and not get another dime out of you. you tell them, <laughs> <All> <laughs> <No.
0: right. laughs> you tell, right. tell them Jesus.
2: <laughs> but also, um, yeah, I, I get frustrated by the fact that. The society that we have is inherently exploitative, right? And and you work in higher education, like yeah. that, that's that's what you do. And you understand a little bit about like how this thing is almost inescapable at a certain point, the moment you get sucked in because college is supposed to be a good thing, right? The, lit- the liberal arts is supposed to be a good, you're supposed to be able to expose yourself to, to things in the world and have certain parts of your brain fostered and be able to contribute to society in a good way. Um, but somewhere along the line that turned into an endeavor in which the students were no longer like the the primary customer, like the the students is no longer who we're trying to take care of here. there's an industry of people win money. Like that, that's the primary customer, like (laughs) that's who we're servicing at this point Mm -hmm. because it doesn't make sense, right? Um, Based on the education that kids are getting in high schools and everything, that at 17 years old, without a co-signer, you can sign on for these student loans. And how many 17 year olds do you know who can accurately tell you what they would like to do professionally with even if not the rest of their life for the next 10 years of their life? How, Mm -hmm. How many do you know? How many people do you know who've gone to college and changed majors several times? Like, we now understand about the brain that your prefrontal cortex isn't even done developing until you're in your mid-20s, right? Mm-hmm. Like, let's say 26. So nine years before that, a decade before that, when you are, in essence, you, you got you got a, a Ferrari body with Ford Pinto brakes. Your, your, <laughs> your brain is not caught up with where your body is. You're right. legally approaching young adulthood. We're saying that, oh, yeah, you can get all these loans. Now, mind you, I had trouble buying a house at one point because they said, "Oh, you had too many student loans." I said, "How ironic is it, right, that I went to college to get a degree right. because it was supposed to help me get a job, and, and and so that I could buy a house, right? And because real estate is how you pass on generational wealth." And now you're telling me I can't do that thing because I did this thing, and just the the way that that trap goes in there, um, it's a great illustration of the idea that sin kills everything it touches because this one thing that okay, just like. Eve in the Garden of Eden was not bad for wanting wisdom. That's a good thing. It's how she went about getting it that became a problem, right? Because she didn't even lie about God. Wanting a higher education is a good thing. But then when we go and and take advantage of what are in effect children and tell them, oh, you could do this. And at the end of the day, you sign on that promissory note, a lot of time will look like free money. And later, like, what did I get myself into? I don't even want to do this. Like, with with my partner, like, I I, want to be a nail tech now. Like, I thought I wanted to be a teacher, but you know, um, and that's, crazy because not only is it a disservice to the children, it's a disservice to the country when these children are now adults and cannot financially contribute to this free market system that we have because we are so overburdened by debt. You know, you understand? Mm -hmm. Um, it's one of those things where the greed of some people has, uh, severely hampered the ability of society to thrive as many of us believe that it should.
1: I like that man, and I don't think people caught what you said, man. We you said we have a Ferrari body with Ford Pinto brakes, brother. Is that what you said? Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: I, I, I caught that because like I have I have a teenager. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And, and we're because from from a distance she looks like an adult, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but because she's still a teenager, she still thinks like a child. And some of the messaging that she's getting is that oh we could do like these these like we need to grow up and and do all these things and yeah one of the struggles as a parent is how do we navigate this because they are in the process of becoming adults but their brain is not like caught up the the, the brain inside their head does not always match the reality that we're seeing on the outside like this is the, these stages of development and it's a lot of times at that stage where they're the most vulnerable the most impressionable and that we have these large corporations that are targeting people in that exact demographic it's crazy. Right? Like bodies telling them, oh, we ready to go. Or and 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 the brains aren't caught up to make the informed decisions, right? Like informed consent is a requirement in medical procedures and 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 surveys and, and research and, and things you guys do. We have informed. So the idea that somebody's supposed to understand what they're undergoing what they're going through is inherently understood, particularly in in research and education, that these loans are supposed to be funded. And how are we getting informed consent from people whose whose brains literally can't wrap their minds around this yet?
1: Right. 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 Well, and I can tell you, man, having been in the higher education system for well over two decades, um, the the age at which people are more cognizant of things, man, is is, is going further back even more. I mean, so somebody at wow. 17, 18 uh, coming in talking about, yes, I absolutely want to do this. I mean, when I get students, most students now uh, have been to like three or four universities before they've even gotten to me. And maybe I'm one of the universities on their path before they end up at another university. I mean, the the, the way of even doing college is is completely yeah. changed um just since the pandemic. Uh so you're absolutely right, man. I mean, when I think about the sheer costs of uh you know what college is, man, that's a whole different podcast in and of itself. But I appreciate you 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 pointing that out and, and bringing those 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 points out because that you know, there is something right with that comes with that. Especially when we start thinking about, like you said, debt, um, home ownership, property ownership. Uh, like you said, just d- developing wealth, which, at least as I was told when I was coming to, because I didn't go to you know college right out of high school. I you know I was working building houses and stuff, man, and, and went back. I was always told you go to college so you can get that better job, have a higher right. income, so you can afford these things, so you don't have to work as hard. Uh, but now I see cats graduating, you know, and they're working twice as hard as they were prior to them even. You know, going to school and stuff, man. Well, that kind of ties back to, I like the way you start out chapter nine. Um, and I'll, and I'll, well, we can, we can wrap up on this. Uh, and I'm going to put all the links for the book and everything in the show notes because folks have got to go read this. There's a lot of nuanced parts, and I appreciate your writing style uh, that has come through uh, in this book. But chapter nine says the church got to pick one, the American dream, preached by Democrats and Republicans alike. Uh, and the age to come, as preached by Jesus and his disciples, are two distinct, diametrically opposed ways of being. You cannot strive for both at the same time. The church got to pick one or pick which one we are preaching. Talk a little bit about that, man.
2: Yeah, at the end of the day, we got to recognize that Christianity. OK, no, I want to say that, because like I said, there is no Christianity. There are Christianity. So Christianity is completely <laughs> compatible with the American way. Yeah, but. The way, as it, as it was originally called, the way, right, like following Jesus does not at all comport with what we value as the American way. It's completely and entirely incompatible. So when Jesus says things like it is harder for a uh, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. All right. Um, one of the things about American dream, even when we talked about this now, or you go to college so that you can get the good job, it's easier for you to build wealth and everything that's incompatible with what Jesus is saying in that moment. And what we value, the things that we ascribe significance and virtue to in in America, like as a nation, particularly when we think about the economic system that we support, the, the idea of the free market, the, the magic hand of the market is in its in and of itself, almost a theological concept that that a market is something that can exist in a vacuum and determine these out like we're ascribing these these supernatural powers to to a market and everything and no that that's incompatible with what Jesus says about the way of love because love is giving like love love gives love takes like it absorbs the worst that we have to give and it and it gives commitment to the best of people right mm-hmm. so I end the book talking about how love or I define love as the commitment to wholeness. And it's hard to do that while being an American, the way that we are trained to be Americans, like what it means to, to pursue the American dream. We we have to pick between the two. And there are times when the church seems to try to straddle this line, right? When you go to the church and it has an American flag in the pulpit and there, we, we wanna be good Americans and we'll read Romans 13, which despite it being a passage written to a mixed congregation of Roman and Roman Gentiles and Jewish people and how they want to govern their community. For some reason, they take that one chapter and assume it's talking about civil governments, mm-hmm. which doesn't make any sense. Well, First Peter 2 does make that same point about civil, civil governments, but this one's not, but for whatever reason, the church has said that, oh, like we have to obey the state because God put the authority in place and, and we want to be good Americans and also good Christians. And you can do that, but you can't follow Jesus at the same time. You're going to have to pick one.
1: Mm. You're
2: going to have to pick one. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and and for me, that that's a lot of what this comes down to uh, because if discipleship is something to be taken seriously, if, if trying to look more like Jesus is going to be taken seriously, then yeah, we got to understand that uh, it's going to put us at odds, right? You know, there's people who talk about this concept of being politically homeless. A lot of times they say that and, and they're describing some sort of centrism Um, And centrism, I would argue, is something that uh, Jesus is very much not, right? Like Jesus talks about spitting out the lukewarm, I'd rather you be hot or cold. I think there is a level of political homelessness that comes with following Jesus for the simple fact that none of this stuff, like I said, in, in, in that quote you read, the American dream preached by Democrats and Republicans alike, They're kind of talking about the same things, right? Or a lot of the the assumptions are the same between the two parties about what this place ought to look like. And if you're going to follow Jesus, some of that stuff you have to look at at and say, like, no, this is not the way. This is not what heaven looks like. This is not what love looks like. This is not Mm -hmm. what it looks like to show up in the best way uh, for our neighbors. This is not what it looks like to love our neighbor or love ourselves. And if that's the case, then we can't love God while we're doing this and so yeah my 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 argument here is that if the church is gonna walk in integrity, we're gonna have to pick one of them so it can't be both
1: yeah yeah no i i i think there's uh yeah there's an argument to be made you know in regards to that i think uh there you know there's a lot to be said in and around that uh especially you know when we see um you know, churches that are huge and large and you know, and I mean people have been talking about this for a long time. You know, it's like how can somebody own a multimillion dollar home and you know uh yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know what I'm saying? I mean, so I there there are those components to that and and, you know, we can laugh at it we can kind of snicker at it. But the reality of it is is that somebody's still giving tithes to some of these people um that are on television and somebody's still, you know, putting that money in. So clearly you know they're they're still striking a nerve on on some level, and you know that's yeah that that's always concerning to me, especially we start when you start seeing the political landscape of where we find ourselves uh, in this country. Um, yeah, because the,
2: the, the oh
1: my bad. No, 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 go yeah. ahead. Yeah,
2: what that does right, and I'm not here to like hate on pastors who who are rich or, or anything anything. So that's not what I'm doing here. But when the person who like the people that we keep seeing are, are are the rich ones. And I want to be clear in saying that is not the majority of pastors. Like, well, I, I work in ministry full time. And let me tell you, Jesus is not pay like that. I'm, I'm out here struggling. That's why, that's why I got this book out here right now. You understand? Yeah. Like, you know, and, and I can't count on too much money from that neither. But at the same time, when that is looked and, and celebrated as what a faithful Christian looks like, that is actually impacting what Christians refers to as discipleship. What the goal is, right? So the question is, do we want to look like the dude with the, the multi million dollar house, or whatever? Or do we want to look like Jesus? Which yeah. one is it? Yeah, you have, you have to pick one, because the, the dude in the multi million dollar house is a great American, like he's living the American dream. It's not what Jesus called us to. Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head is the story of Jesus. What, you have to pick one. It can't be both.
1: Yeah. Yeah, man, folks, I've uh, been talking with Trey Ferguson. The book is Theologizing Bigger Homilies on Living Freely and Loving wholly. Um Real quick, man, what are some takeaways that you would love people to get from this as they're thinking about, you know, hey, there's this book. Let me go check it out.
2: Yeah, I just want to let you know that whatever tradition that you may have inherited directly or indirectly, whether you was dragged to church every day as a child, uh, whether you were culturally Christian and wherever you find yourself, um, that the God of that tradition or the God beyond that tradition even uh, is capable of leading you to a healthy and holy and, 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 and holistic place even if that tradition did you well, that the God beyond that tradition can call you like even further beyond that, right? And so the subtitle, Living Freely and Loving Holy, is the idea of what constraints have been put on our imaginations of God that have not served us well. And will we be bold enough to give ourselves permission to travel beyond those constraints mm. and see where God might lead us, right? And so all that to say, my desire, my hope for everyone who engages with this book is that you might discover a God who is bigger uh, than the God that you would imagine before you met that, before you read the book.
1: Mm, I like that. I like that, man. Um, I will put the notes or I'll put the links to this book, uh, in the show notes, whiteoutpodcast.com, go to profane faith and there you will find, uh, the links and all that. But, f- uh, where can folks find you, man? Where can they bring you out to do some speaking, you know, get you on uh, a, a line and, and the in the whole nine, man, ABC news morning, you know, all that good stuff, brother.
2: Most definitely. The best place to do that is at PastorTrey05.com. That's at dot 05com thats dot 05com You can find me on all the socials at the same handle, except on Facebook. It's real 5 I think. I don't know, but the link there is also at pastortrail 5com <laughs> <laughs> You can subscribe to the Sundew Move newsletter at pastortrail 5com Everything I got can be found over at pasttrail5.com, including pre-order links for theologizing bigger and all that stuff.
1: Excellent, excellent. And as always, um, again, I put these all in the show notes. And you have a podcast as well, yes? I got two of them. Yeah, damn it. Let's plug them up, them. man. Let's what you got. Yeah,
2: you can find this on our uh, three black men. Uh, theology, culture, and the world around us. I host okay. that with my brothers, Sam Gay and Rob Monson. Um, and then also the New Living Translation, Bonafide Bible Talk with yours truly, Pastor Trey. Uh, break down the scriptures a little bit, little bite sized chunks 15 minutes, 18 minutes. I think the longest episode of that has been 18 minutes. And, okay. Uh, Get in, get
1: out, we do that thing. Uh, that's great, man. Yeah, that's great. Some of my introductions are, are 18 minutes alone. So that's, that's great. <laughs> you can get in and out by then, man. Yeah, um, man. That's awesome. And I'm assuming they're on all the platforms. All of
2: them, wherever you listen to your podcast,
1: you can find us at. Excellent. Again, I'll put these all in the show notes, uh, get some, uh, some some publications on, get some follows and likes and everything. Man, Brother Trey, thank you so much for taking the time um, and talking to us uh, about your new book, the work that you're doing, and uh, your part of the world, man. I appreciate you. No,
2: I appreciate you right back, man. God going to bless your socks off.
1: I heard that. I'll take them <laughs> socks off, too,
0: man. <laughs> yeah. Hey, everyone. I'm Jessica from the Leaving the Village podcast. I wanted to take a moment to say thank you for tuning into this show. We're so grateful that you've decided to spend your time with us. Seriously, Dan, Gail, Kathleen, Nate, Scott, and the rest of us here at the Dauntless Media Collective couldn't produce content like the show you're listening to without your support. I'd also like to invite you even further into the conversation. Right now, there are some great discussions happening over in the Dauntless Media Collective Discord server. If you're interested in chatting with other folks who are deconstructing and decolonizing the oppressive traditions they came from, please feel free to hop onto the server. If you don't know what Discord is, it's a place where communities can gather online for chatting on a wide variety of topics. In our Discord server, we have channels devoted to general deconstruction conversations, some meme sharing, therapeutic venting about whatever religious bullshit you're currently dealing with, and even a channel specifically devoted to talking about the latest episode of the podcast you're listening to right now. I hope you'll join us. You can log in directly to the Dauntless server by clicking on the link in the show notes or heading to dauntless.fm and clicking on the link in the top banner. See you there.